This is a Federal News Network podcast. Appropriations came through with only half a year to obligate them. The 2023 budget schedule is foggy, and inflation overlays the buying power of every federal dollar. For what contractors are or should be thinking about, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Stephanie, what should contractors be doing now in this kind of uh, sort this out for us? I wish I could say that having a um, continuing resolution situation is something new and different, but of course we've had that for the vast majority of the last decade. Uh, we've started the fiscal year under a continuing resolution and the, the constraints under under CRs are well known. It, it's no new starts, no new programs. You can't even retire old programs. You have to keep the status quo as though you're a frozen in time as of September 30th of the previous year. With six months gone of the new fiscal year, can no longer call it the new fiscal year, I guess, uh, FY22, we finally have an omnibus appropriations that will cover the rest of the fiscal year. The issue for contractors comes with the fact that contracting officers within the government under a CR are often loath to obligate the funds that they have at their disposal because they're not quite sure if they're going to be facing recurring continuing resolutions or when they're ever going to get that. We'll call it a full year appropriation, but it's the rest of the year appropriation. And so you've seen a chilling effect under CRs. And now all of a sudden there'll be a mad scramble to obligate funds. You know, the fiscal year 22 ends on September 30th of this year. That gives them roughly six and a half months to obligate all of this money that they've just been given if it is one year money. And this is where I want to draw a distinction for you, Tom, um, and, and the listeners, is that a lot of the money that has been appropriated is one year money. In the Department of Defense, for example, that's operations maintenance funding. Other pieces of the budget or of the Appropriations Act are multiple year money, whether it's research development, test and evaluation or procurement. It's not limited to the fiscal year. So really the mad dash will be on that one year funding that was provided. In DOD, that's operations and maintenance. And so when I talk to contractors and for PSC, it's specifically services contractors, I talk to them about making sure that they're keeping lines of communication open with their contracting officers, open with uh, whatever department or agency they're working with to make sure that the operations and maintenance money is being obligated. Here's the rub. Right about now is when the comptroller at DOD, for example, starts to look around and trying to sweep up unobligated funds. The comptroller looks around, asks the services and the defense agencies at DOD, what have you not obligated? That usually comes out about May with a giant reprogramming, sometimes as late as August, but oftentimes uh, somewhere between the May and August timeframe. And I really, really do worry about that one-year money, about that operations and maintenance money. So that is what I'm watching. What about procurement accounts? For the Department of Defense, it's not one-year money. In some cases, you know, when you look at RDT near the research development test and evaluation and procurement money at DOD, it's two or three-year money. And so it's really O&M, some of the personnel costs. And remember, civilian pay is all within operations and maintenance. So when you're looking at something like the Department of Defense, with the number of civilian employees they have, all of that is tied to the fiscal year in which it's appropriated. So therefore, contractors should try to convince people to start programs now, because if there's when there's the next CR, at least they can continue <laughs> with what they started in the stub of the prior year. That is an excellent point, Tom. No one is, is um, if you're a betting person, you're not betting that we're going to start fiscal 23 with a full year appropriation. All indications are that we'll start fiscal 23 with another continuing resolution, not only because 
that's been the norm over the last decade or so, but also because we, you know, we're in a midterm election cycle and people are going to try to get out of Dodge, get out of DC, go back to their districts campaign. Um, I suspect very strongly that we'll start with a CR in 23. So the only time to start a new program is between now and September 30th. Great. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Inflation seems to overlay all of what's going on now. How does that affect what you expect to happen between now and the end of the fiscal? Because things might have been bid, now they're going to be awarded, perhaps and obligated, but the costs have gone up. That is an excellent point, Tom. You know, you mentioned procurement before, and this is really where, you know, the rubber meets the road is is that it does reduce the buying power of the Department of Defense when you've got the inflation uh, that we, we are currently experiencing. I spent a little bit of time in, in OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, in the comptroller's shop, and I know that they do plan for inflation. For fiscal year 22, they plan for roughly 2.2% inflation, and they're facing 8%. So, what that does is greatly reduce the buying power of the Department of Defense and also of the contractors. The General Services Administration asked um, about a week and a half ago, asked the associations with which it works to pulse our members to find out where exactly are they feeling the impact of inflation on supply chains. GSA has something called economic price adjustments that they can use, but there are limits to that normally in, in how many uh, price adjustments you can ask for. Our membership, and we've got over 400 member companies, came back to us and said, you know, really where the, this is hurting us, yes, it's the supply chain. Things are taking longer to be delivered and we can buy fewer of them with the current inflation. However, we're really feeling the rub when it comes to our personnel, our labor, our workforce, because we can no longer pay them a pace with inflation. You know, what they used to be able to buy at the store, think of a gallon of milk, or you could think about a, a you know a gallon of gasoline, they can no longer afford what they could afford six months ago. And so how do contractors pay their people a living wage or keeping pace with inflation? And it's tough. Those individuals are seeking employment elsewhere, higher paying jobs. Um, and so from a contractor's perspective, inflation has all of these ripple on effects, reduced buying power, and then the workforce implications are tremendous. And somehow that seems to tie into the final rule on buy in America or made in America. That's been the policy anyhow, but it does increase the percentages and so forth. Any real effect there for services contractors? We at PSC have long talked to the executive branch, the administration in particular, about um, the cost of Made in America. Now, to go back previously, you know, I mentioned GSA. They have put a temporary moratorium on how many price adjustments you can ask. So that's great news for folks who are looking for price adjustments in the GSA world. We are working with DOD, Department of Homeland Security, and others to see what they're doing for inflation. But the Made in America piece, when it comes to products and goods, there are going to be increased costs, and it really is a balance. What does the administration seek in terms of the the impetus behind Made in America? And, and interestingly enough, the executive order is called um, Ensuring the Future is Made in All of America by All of American Workers. For the administration, I believe this really does come down to the workers. And so, again, we're looking at inflation. We're looking at what it's doing to the workforce. We're looking at what we can pay them. And it really is an issue. I would caveat this, Tom, by saying services are excluded from the Made in America um, push here. Right now it is products and goods. And we hope to keep that um, bright line distinction that, you know, when it comes to making the future 
you know, the future is made in all of America by all of American workers, that we are working together with the administration to make sure this is done in a sensible way fully cognizant that it's going to be it's going to cost more than than using the global market. And just a detailed question on this 800 million dollars that was approved by Congress signed by the president for aid to Ukraine military items and so forth. Any effect on services contractors from this money? Yes, I'm glad you asked that Tom. You know, everyone in our community you know, we've been talking about the horrific developments that we've been seeing in Ukraine, what the Russian forces are doing, the logistics challenges they're run into where, where the Russian forces can't feed or fuel up their forces that are in Ukraine. From a services contractor's perspective, we are seeing, you know, obviously mentioned the 800 million in military aid to Ukraine. Part of that will be sustainment services and the like that will use services contractors. The other piece of it is what is the U.S. doing and what is NATO doing to mobilize their lines of communication so they can resupply any troops that you know might be needed? I have seen job advertisements from services contractors for jobs in Poland that are sustainment or life support services. Life support, you know, in the DoD context is basically food, shelter, transportation. It's not life support in the medical sense, although that may come into play as well. So services contractors are gearing up to help support U.S. NATO forces uh, as decisions are made. And so the forces are flowing, services contractors are flowing into the European command theater. Interesting. Stephanie Castro is executive vice president of policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why i think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion some of that probably comes from the fact that i've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact and having six kids in a world of social media i think there's something the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits and, and i think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.